We need your grace for this. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. If you guys ever had a day, maybe a week, maybe a month, where you get to the end of it and you look back and you think, what in the world? <laughs> what just happened? How, how, how did we get from where we were to where we are today? Sometimes it happens in the course of an hour, right? I think that's where we are, we are in Genesis 16. Remember what happened back in Genesis 15, what we studied last week? God has promised Abram that his offspring would be more numerous than the stars of the sky. And Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then God promised that Abram would inherit the land. Abram asked God, God, how can I know I will inherit the land? And God told him exactly how it was going to happen. And then he physically manifested himself in the form of a a flaming furnace and a flaming torch And then he passed between animals as a way of confirming his covenant with Abram. I think last week we studied probably one of the most spiritually rich confirming encounters that anyone has ever had with God. And then we get to Genesis 16. What in the world? What just happened? And how did this happen? And so we'll look through Genesis 16 and we'll see some events play out that will give us great insight into how it happened. And they'll play out in four different stages. And these stages are going to form our outline for how we study Genesis 16 this morning. So the outline that we've got is rejection, resentment, repentance, and restoration. So these are the stages that we see play out through Genesis 16. Rejection, resentment, repentance, and restoration. And so the first thing we see, we see rejection. So take a look. Genesis 16, verse 1 says, Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan ten years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. And so between Sarai and Abram, there's actually quite a lot being rejected here. And the first thing that's being rejected is God's promise. They're rejecting God's promise. You, you read this and you might think to yourself, Sarai, what are you doing? Why would you even begin to suggest this to Abram? What faithlessness. I mean, didn't God tell you that you would have a son? Just trust God, Sarai. What are you doing? But actually, no, God had not yet told Sarai that she would have a son. He had told Abram. He told Abram that he would have a son. And it had been over 10 years since Abram had first called, or since God had first called Abram out of the land of Ur and promised him that he would make him into a great nation. It's been 10 years. Have you ever waited 10 years for something? 
I bet many of you have. I bet you have waited 10 years for something. Some of you. And if you have, you would probably be the first ones to say that it is not easy. That it's painful. It's very hard. Some of us have a hard time waiting 10 hours for something. We hop on Amazon and we order something and it says free next day shipping instead of free same day shipping. And we think, how can I do this? I can't do this. Waiting is hard. But 10 years, 10 years, Abram and Sarai have been waiting for 10 years for God to fulfill his promise. And they're waiting because God made a promise to them. Right? It's not like having a baby in their 80s was their idea. God promised that this child would come. And Abram's 86 years old. And so Sarai, she's not outright rejecting God's promise necessarily, but she is rejecting the idea that God would use her to fulfill his promise to Abram. And so we read this. It says, Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Verse 3. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. And so when we consider God's promise to Abram, in Sarai's suggestion and Abram's compliance, then together, both are rejecting the promise of God. You know, up to this point, God had not explicitly told Abram that this promised child would come from Sarai, but he shouldn't have to. They were married. It would have been clear to both of them that God was not asking them to go against his design for marriage. But they did. In their pursuit of efficiency, in their pursuit of a shortcut, the next thing that they reject then is God's design. They reject the exclusivity of sexual relations that's demanded within marriage. They also reject the roles that God has established for their marriage relationship, particularly the role of a husband to lead and care for and protect his wife. I mean, this, isn't this story easy to rewrite in your mind? Couldn't we just rewrite it? Sarai said to Abram, since, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram said, no, Sarai. The Lord promised me a child that would be born from me, and you are my wife. The Lord will open your womb, Sarai. He has promised it. And even if he doesn't, Sarai, it would be dishonoring to the Lord to sleep with another woman. That is not my wife. I love you, Sarai. I love you, and you are the only one I will ever love. Trust me as I trust the Lord. And Sarai agreed with her husband. Couldn't we re rewrite the story that way? That's not what Abram did. It's not how it played out. It sounds an awful lot like Genesis 3, doesn't it? See, in the garden... Eve saw the fruit. She took the fruit and then gave some to her husband. Here, Sarai sees an opportunity. She sees a shortcut. She takes her slave as the means to that shortcut, and then she gives her slave to her husband. Adam, in the garden, had every opportunity to turn to Eve and say, No, Eve, 
God has commanded us not to do that. Here, Abram has every opportunity to tell Sarai, no, Sarai, God will be faithful to his promise, but he doesn't. Instead, he stood passively by while Sarai, in her grief and her frustration, led her and her husband into disobedience. And so as Sarai and Abram reject God's promise and God's design, just like Adam and Eve, they are also rejecting God's authority. It's the third thing we see being rejected. See, both Abram and Sarai knew plainly that God was God. He was God Almighty. Previously in chapter 14, Abram referred to the Lord as God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. That's what he called God, the creator of heaven and earth. He understood this. He rightly understood that it was God that held all authority as the creator of all things. And God had made a promise to Abram, and he told him how that promise was going to come about. But in their impatience and their desire to take a shortcut around what the Lord had clearly prescribed in his authority, they clearly rejected his authority as creator and king, and they took matters into their own hands. And what we are witnessing here is nothing new to humanity. There's nothing new about this. This is what happened with Adam and Eve, and it has happened in every human heart since the fall. See, the the condition of our fallen hearts, it's one that naturally rejects God's authority and design. See, we, we think as we reject God's authority and design that we know our own needs. We know our own situations better than God. And so we reject his authority and design, we fail to believe his promises, and then as a result, what we do is we take matters into our own hands. And when we do that, the outcome is never good. The rejection of God's promise, design, and authority, it leads to this triangle of resentment between Sarai, Hagar, and Abram. And so that's the second point on our outline this morning, is this resentment that we see play out. Take a look again in verse of our passage. It says, When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, Here, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. This is like a Jerry Springer moment. It's like, what is going on? Who is mad at who and for what? You're sitting down trying to like observe some sort of like middle school drama almost of like, well, you said this and you did this. And, and so he, here's what I understand as the triangle of resentment here. Hagar had contempt toward Sarai. She looked down on Sarai. And this was probably for a couple of reasons. The first reason it could have been for is out of pride. In that Sarai was barren, but Hagar was pregnant. And so culturally, this would have made Hagar better than Sarai in pretty much every way. Forget the fact that Hagar was from Egypt and that she was a slave. She could conceive. And Sarai could not. And that would have brought great shame on Sarai. But the second reason that Hagar could have had contempt 
would be out of hatred and disrespect towards Sarai because Sarai had used Hagar as though she was an object, as though she was a means of getting what Sarai wanted. See, Hagar had absolutely no choice in what played out here. She was forced to sleep with 86-year-old Abram to, to get pregnant by him, to carry his child for nine months, and then to go through the painful delivery process of giving birth to a child that was not even going to be considered hers. And this was all because Sarai was just growing impatient on waiting on the Lord's promise. And so Sarai perceived this contempt that was oozing out of her slave, and she turned and placed the blame on her husband and said, it's your fault, Abram. It's your fault that my slave hates me and looks down on me now. You're the one who had to go and get her pregnant. It's not at all how it actually happened. And so Abram responds with complete passivity. He's like, well, don't be mad at me, Sarai. Here, just take your anger out on your slave. Your slave. Notice he doesn't refer to Hagar as his wife, even though that's exactly what she was. He says, your slave, take your anger out on her. The one that I just forcefully impregnated to see if I could somehow take a shortcut around what God had prescribed. And so that's what happened. So I took Hagar and mistreated her. And the text doesn't tell us exactly what she did, but I think we can infer, based on what we read, that it was certainly more than the silent treatment. Because Hagar ran away. She ran away from her mistress. And I would say, in all of this, there's no doubt in my mind that Hagar would have felt equal hatred toward Abram, both for what he had did to, done to her and what he allowed Sarai to do to her. And in all of this, we have a huge mess of resentment. But where did this mess start? How did it get going? How did we get here? It didn't start with the pregnancy. It, it didn't even start with Sarai's suggestion to Abram that he were to take Hagar as his wife to see if they could have a baby. That's not where it started. Do you know where it started? It began where all good messes begin. It began in the heart. It, it began with a lack of faith in God. And his word. There was distrust built up in the hearts of Sarai and Abram. Yes, even as after God appeared to Abram in a blazing theophany that we studied last week, Abram still doubted God. And that's where it began. And so, in this, there is a principle that we need to dive into this morning. And this is the principle. The nature of our relationships with others is often a reflection of our relationship with God. The nature of our relationships with others is often a reflection of our relationship with God. And so take a minute to just consider your relationships. Consider the relationships within your family or your home. And consider the relationships that you have within the church. Or within your community group. Or at your workplace. If you're married, 
consider the relationship you have with your spouse. If you have kids, consider the relationship you have with your kids. If, you're, if you are a kid, consider the relationship you have with your parents. How would you characterize your relationships? As you think about your relationships, ask yourself, how would you characterize them, generally speaking? Are your relationships warm and gracious? Are, are they life-giving? When you think of those that God has placed in your life, does a spirit of gratitude come easily? Or are your relationships kind of neutral? Are they just kind of there? When it comes to relationships, you could take them or leave them. Or are your relationships cold and distant? Are your relationships damaged? Are they marred by bitterness and resentment and hurt? Are there people that you're trying to avoid, not just because they're talkers or because they have bad hygiene, but because there's real poison in the waters of your relationship? When other people go through difficult times, what is your heart's response? Is there a piece of your heart that rejoices over other people's suffering? Is there anyone that you have ill will towards? Or maybe consider the opposite. What is your heart's response when good things happen to other people? Do you find yourself rejoicing with others when you hear of their good news? Or do you find yourself feeling jealous and bitter and angry that it is not your good news? I want us to consider how the Apostle Paul instructs us as believers in Christ to live in relationship with one another. Okay? Take a moment, flip with me to Colossians. The book of Colossians. Starting in chapter 3, verse 12. Here's what Paul writes. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now, contrast this in Colossians 3 with Genesis 16. And here's my question. Are there, with some relationships, at times... Moments where it feels like you're living in a Genesis 16 world instead of a Colossians 3 world. And my guess is, if you are a human, the answer is yes. At times, with some relationships, I'm not saying all the time with everyone, but sometimes with some relationships, inevitably, we enter conflict. 
There is conflict in our relationships. And there are moments, if you're a human, there are going to be moments where you have a difficult time rejoicing with those who are rejoicing and grieving with those who are grieving. There are going to be times when you have, a, have difficulty not blaming others for your own misfortune. You have a difficult time walking in grace, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. And so what I want to do is I, is I want to consider what it is that enables us to walk in Colossians 3 relationships instead of Genesis 16 relationships this morning. Okay, so remember this principle. Remember that the nature of our relationships with others is often a reflection of our relationship with God. See, this relational mess in Genesis 16, it began with a lack of faith in God's promise to Abram and Sarai. Abram and Sarai's relationship with God, at least in the beginning of Genesis 16, it was not good. It was not strong. Their confidence in God to be faithful to his word, it was wavering. Doubt in their hearts, it was the fuel for the fire of their relational conflict. Look again what Paul says in Colossians 3, though. Verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. What is it that Paul uses as the rationale for putting on kindness, gentleness, compassion, humility, and patience? What is the rationale? What does he point to? He points to our identity in Christ, who we are, who God has made us to be. He points to the truth that we have been chosen by God, that we are holy in his sight, and that he loves us deeply. If we are in Christ, that is true. Before Paul jumps into instructions on how we are to conduct our relationships, he, he makes an appeal with the promise of the gospel. He uses our identity as a way to appeal to the promise of the gospel as the rationale for putting on kindness and compassion and gentleness and humility and gentleness. See, he says, as God's chosen people, God's chosen people. Who is God? God is the one who spoke all things into existence and who has ultimate authority over everyone and everything. He has chosen you. Even though your nature is sinful, even though you do not honor God as you should, even though you deserve to endure His wrath for all of eternity, God has chosen you. He has made you holy and righteous and blameless before Him. This, your sin, it's no longer on you. It is on Christ. It was placed on Christ. He bore your sin on the cross. He paid the price that you deserve to pay so that you don't have to. He became sin so that in Him you might become the righteousness of God. He made you holy, and He did all of this because He loves you. See, the God of the universe loves you, and He proved His love to you by sending His Son. In Christ, we have the forgiveness of sins and the salvation of our souls. This is God's promise to you if you are in Christ. This is his promise that compels Colossians 3 relationships. 
And so what happens when we forget this promise? Abram and Sarai forgot God's promise. They rejected it. What happens when we forget this promise? When we forget the gospel? When we forget that God has chosen us in Christ to be holy and blameless before him? You know what happens? When we forget that God has chosen us, we live like we are our own. We take matters into our own hands. And like Abram and Sarai, we attempt to take shortcuts around real faithful obedience to God. And we do what seems best to us. And when we do this, we hurt people. We hurt people and we hurt ourselves. And there's a number of ways this can play out, but I think there's two ways in particular that are worth mentioning this morning. And the first way this plays out is we can walk in worry. We walk in worry. If we're taking matters into our own hands, if you think that you are in charge of you, that your life, it is in your hands, and everything rests on your shoulders, things must go according to your plan. How heavy does that weigh on your soul? That is, that is a heavy weight. If you are a Christian, take comfort in knowing that the world does not rest on your shoulders. Your life does not rest on your shoulders. There is a one who is currently holding all things together, including your life, by the power of his word. That person is not you. It is the Lord Jesus. And we can rejoice in this and we can rest in this. And when we're walking in worry, believing that the world rests on our shoulders, what happens is our minds are not free. They are not free to consider others. They're not free to walk in compassion and kindness and gentleness and humility and patience towards others. And the reason they're not free is because we are just carrying the weight of the world that we were never meant to carry. And of course, there's going to be times we walk in worry. And there's going to be times where we see one another walking in anxiety and worry. And when we see that, the Bible is very clear. We are to come alongside that brother and sister. Show them grace. Encourage them. Carry some of the weight for them. And ultimately point them back to the one who does and can carry all the weight. And if we reject God's promise, we reject his design, we reject his authority, and we're not walking in worry, there's a reason for that. It's because we're walking in warfare. If we're not worrying about it, it's because we're going to war. And so here's what happens. We're still carrying the weight of making sure that everything goes according to our own plan. But instead of worrying about it, we just need to make sure no one else gets in the way. And so instead of clothing ourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, and instead of valuing our relationships enough to bear with one another, to forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven us, rather than seeing our brothers and sisters as those that God has sovereignly placed in our lives for the mutual edification and encouragement and sanctification and service, what happens is we quickly begin to see one another as threats. People become threats to our plans. 
especially those that are seeking to love us by pointing us back to the truth of God's promise, design, and authority. If we don't see them as a threat, then maybe we see them as a commodity. See, people only become useful to us because they're able to help us get what we're after. Their value is not dependent on the fact that God purchased them with the blood of his son, that they've been created in the image of God. Their value to us comes from what they're able to do for us as we pursue our own goals that are going against what God has asked us to do. I see this is what, I think this is what we see playing out in Genesis 16. Abram and Sarai, they rejected God's promise, design, and authority, and this created a sea of resentment between the three characters. Abram and Sarai, I think they likely did walk in worry for a time, but when they saw Hagar as a possible commodity, uh, something to use to achieve their own shortcut to God's purpose, we, we just walked into a world of ungodly warfare between them. And I would imagine that over the course of your lifetime, you either have in the past, you currently are, or you will someday walk in relational conflict that is a result of a lack of faith in God's promise. I think we can say that with relative certainty. And so the question is, when this happens in our lives, what do we do? When God graciously reveals this to us, what do we do? I'm going to answer that question, but I'm also going to say I'm not claiming to have the cure-all for every relational conflict. That's not, I think, the intent of this passage necessarily. All right? But we want to think, when we walk in relational conflict, whether it's just the, the most trivial thing, the smallest little root of bitterness in our heart towards somebody, or it's the greatest conflict that we've ever experienced, what do we do? Relational conflict, it comes in layers of complexity. So again, this isn't the cure-all, but I think we can say that if we fail to do what I'm about to share with you, our hope of walking in Colossians 3 relationship. Our hope of actually experiencing reconciliation with these relationships, it is very slim. It becomes very slim. And so we're going to look back at Genesis 16 to see the last two points on our outline. Those are the things that we need to, as believers in Christ, pursue if we're going to seek reconciliation in our relationships. And so, starting in verse 7, Hagar is running away from Sarai, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. So Hagar's heading back to Egypt. That's the direction she's going. And the angel of the Lord finds her. And he says, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. And so when the angel of the Lord questions Hagar, Notice what she doesn't do. She doesn't try to justify herself. She, she doesn't try to excuse her behavior, which she very well could have done. There was a reason she was running away. But she doesn't. She, 
She doesn't shift blame. She doesn't instantly assume the role of a victim. She just simply and honestly recognizes her own actions in all of this. So the angel of the Lord tells her to turn around and go back to Sarai and to submit to her authority. I think the angel of the Lord is saying that possibly because just because Sarai was barren, it was not a reason to look down on her with contempt. He's saying, Hagar, if you, if you hadn't looked so judgmentally on her, if you had not hated her so much, if you had not looked with her on contempt, then it's possible that Sarai would not have treated you so badly. Now, I'm not saying that Sarai is innocent. I'm not excusing Sarai at all. But I am saying that this is at least worth, worth thinking about, that God is trying to help Hagar see her own role in all of it. And so what happens then is Hagar recognizes her role and then she repents. The text does not use the word repent here. It's fair to point out that the text doesn't say this explicitly, but I think we can draw this conclusion because she does go back. She does submit to Sarai once again. And so I do want to touch briefly on this third point this morning that we see in the text. It is repentance. Because if there is going to be any hope, any hope of reconciliation in our relationships, then there must be, there must be a willingness to repent of our own wrongdoing. Here's here's the thing. Recognition of a fault is one thing. Recognition is one thing. It is, it is one thing to recognize that you've offended someone by your words or actions. Maybe you recognize that you have bitterness in your heart towards someone or, or towards your spouse. Maybe you recognize that you have a tendency to compare yourself with others or to criticize their shortcomings or to be jealous of their giftings. But what we must understand is that recognition is not synonymous with repentance. Recognition is not the same thing as repentance. I've had a number of conversations over the years that involve comments that are similar to this, where it's like, yeah, I'm really struggling with a critical spirit. Or I'm struggling with with bitterness towards someone. I'm, I'm struggling with comparing myself to others. I'm struggling with jealousy. And I think, okay, praise God. Praise God that there's self-awareness. Praise God that there's confession here. That we recognize where the struggle is. I've made these comments as well because guess what? I, I struggle with many of these things. I think most of us probably do. But in these comments, there is a very important word that I think is being left out. And that word is sin. Do you struggle with a critical spirit? In your own minds, do not soften that. You struggle with the sin of a critical spirit. Do you struggle with bitterness? Again, don't soften that. You struggle with the sin of bitterness. Do you struggle with comparison? You struggle with the sin of of comparison? Do you struggle with jealousy? Do you struggle with the sin of jealousy? Brothers and sisters, do not soften that. And I get it. 
I get it. Why? Because I struggle with sin. Who doesn't struggle with sin? Okay. See, I get it. The Apostle Paul struggled with sin. There is one person in the history of the world who has not struggled with sin, and that is the Lord Jesus. We cannot avoid the struggle with sin. It is part of the game. But God has not called us simply to recognition of our sin. He has called us to repent repent from our sin. He has called us to repentance. To turn away from it. To confess it and then to repent. And when by God's grace we're able to do this, then we are positioned to be restored by God himself. And this is the third or the fourth point on our outline this morning. It is restoration. We see this play out in the rest of our passage because first God seeks Hagar out and then before Hagar turns to Sarai, here's, or Hagar returns to Sarai, here's what we read. In verse 10, it says, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, You have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. The man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all of his relatives. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are El Roy, for she said, In this place I have actually, or have I actually seen the one who sees me? That is why the well is called Bir Lahai Roy. It is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So we're going to get into what happens with Ishmael later on in our study of Genesis. There's much to get into. But today I just want us to see one thing. Hagar says, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? She receives comfort. She is restored by God. She isn't restored by another person. She isn't restored by a good venting session. She's restored by God. She is specifically restored by God's omniscience. In other words, God's all, he, he knows everything. He, he is aware of all things. He sees all things. He hears all things. He saw Hagar, and he knew exactly what was going on. He knows where Hagar, you know, he knows how Hagar was treated by Sarai. He knows what Abram did to Sarai, or did to Hagar. He knows where she is. He knows what her future is. He knows the future of her son. And in times... When your heart is hardened towards others, when you're not walking in humility, when you're harboring bitterness and resentment and you're walking in criticism or comparison, here's the thing. God knows. He's aware. And for a Christian, that's actually a very wonderful thing. Because it means we don't have to try to hide our sin from God. Instead, we can just go to Him. We can go to him and we can humble ourselves and we can repent and we can receive his grace. But then in times when we've done that, when we've done all that we can to live at peace with others, if you have to the best of your ability, you've weeded out all bitterness, you've taken the log out of your own eye, you've 
repented of any wrong attitude, and by God's grace, you genuinely sought to put on compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and love. And when it seems like that has not been reciprocated, it hasn't been returned, then you can take comfort in the fact that God knows. He's aware. Have you seen the one who sees you? When you're enduring trials, especially trials that involve relationships, are you able to trust that God hears you, that he sees you, and that he's with you? And so as we close this morning, I've got one point of application for us. And the point of application this morning, it is to recall and to believe the promise of God. Because think about what misery could have been avoided if Sarai and Abram had simply stopped to remember the totality of God's promise to them. If they had walked in faith that God would uphold his promise. And for us, the promise that we need to recall and remember, it is the gospel. It is the hope of eternal life in Christ. God has called his church to reflect the gospel in their relationships, to display genuine compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience with one another. But here's the thing. If the gospel is not daily molding our hearts, it will not mold our relationships either. The gospel has to mold our hearts. We need to remember and we need to walk in faith of the truth of the gospel. And if you're in the midst of a relational conflict or you're simply just recognizing sin that's in your own heart against a brother or sister, you must begin by going back to the gospel. Go back to the gospel.